Amen. <clears throat> All right, well, we're there in First uh, Corinthians chapter number three. We're making our way through the book of First Corinthians, uh, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And uh, last week we were in First Corinthians three, and we dealt with the very specific part there at the beginning in regards to uh, carnal Christians. And we're just gonna we're gonna just start right where we left off. But this will be the last week in chapter three. Next week we'll be in chapter four. Um, and this this passage here deals with the judgment seat of Christ, and I, I want to speak to you on the subject of the judgment seat of Christ, and specifically preparing for the judgment seat of Christ, but we'll, we'll get a few verses in to get a little bit of the context, and uh, where we left off last week there in verse 5, notice what it says, it says, who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, and if you remember, he's been dealing with this idea of, of uh, these groups that formed, where one would say, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos. He says, who then is Paul and who is Apollos? He says, but ministers by whom ye believed. And I'm not really preaching on, on this, although it, it's, it's in the context, but I want you to notice verse 5 is a pretty powerful verse. Notice these two words. He says, even as the Lord gave to every man. So he says, Paul and Apollos, he says, Paul and Apollos are not anybody special. There's nothing special about Paul and Apollos. He says, they're simply ministers by whom ye believed. He said they were the ministers, they were the tools, they were the people that God used to bring the gospel to you that you might be saved. And you know, in my life and in your life, you would be able to say that there was a minister who God used to bring you, if you're saved, to bring you the gospel that ye might be believed. But here's what's powerful is that then he says this, he says, even as the Lord gave to every man. And here's what he's saying. Every man... On earth, God has appointed a minister. There is a Paul or there is an Apollos that is supposed to bring that individual the gospel. And today, often many people will mock at the Bible and they'll say things like, well, what about, you know, people in the darkest jungles in Africa? Or what about people in the jungles in South America? And what about people that have never heard the gospel? And here's what you need to understand. Anyone in this world who has not heard the gospel, that's not God's fault. God has a minister. God has an individual who he has appointed to bring the gospel to every person. And if someone doesn't get the gospel, it's because of the, the soul winner's disobedience or unwillingness to go. And honestly, you know, you should let that sink in. And that should be uh, quite a sobering thought there, that there are people on this earth, when you got saved, God appointed to you specifically and said, it's your job to reach these people in your lives. Because here's the thing, there are people in your life that I'll never meet. There are people in my life that you'll never meet. And there are certain appointments that God has made. God has appointed you to give the gospel to certain individuals in your life. And God has done that for, to every believer so that, so that the Bible says here that even as the Lord gave to every man, every man has a Paul or an Apollos that's supposed to give the gospel to them. And here's the question. The people that are supposed to get the gospel from you, can they rely on you to bring them the gospel? I mean, isn't that a sad statement? Isn't that a sobering statement to think of the fact that there are some people that I may be the only one that can bring the gospel to them. I may be the only one that knows them, that's saved, that has the true gospel, and I can bring it to them. And when I refuse to do that, I'm damning them to hell, but it's not their fault and it's not God's fault. It's our fault. That's an interesting thought. It's a powerful verse there. He says, who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord 
gave to every man. That's why Paul would say as he'd preach the gospel and people would get saved, he said, your uh, blood be upon your head. And he said, you know, I'm no longer uh, 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 responsible for your salvation. I've, I've warned you and I've done my duty. What you do with it is up to you. Notice verse 6. He says, I have planted, Apollos watered. He says, but God gave the increase. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Notice verse 8. He says, Now he that planteth and he that watereth. Notice what he says. He says, He that planteth and he that watereth are one. And here's what he's saying in these verses. He's saying, The role you play in spreading the gospel is not as important as it is important that you play a role in spreading the gospel. Because really at the end of the day, it is God who saves. It is God who gives the increase. So he says, Look, whether you plant or whether you water, whether you reap, you know, whatever uh, uh, role you play in that progression is not as important as long as you're in that progression somewhere, as long as you are playing a role. He says, you know, he that planted and he that watereth are one, but he says, it is God that giveth the increase. Now, this is not... um, you know, some sort of Calvinist statement where it says, well, it doesn't matter, God gives the increase, doesn't matter what you do. No, look, it does matter whether you plant, it does matter that you water, it does matter that we labor, and that's what he's going to get into in this passage. But what he's saying is, it is God that gives us the success. And by the way, that's why we need to be very careful about getting lifted up in regards to results. You know, if we go out soul winning and we get one person saved, or two people saved, or three people saved, here's what he's saying, and you say, man, I knocked on that door, I asked them the question, they were ready, I preached the gospel, they understood it, man, it it just clicked, it fell into place, they got saved, praise the Lord, and you know what, praise the Lord for that, and you got one person saved, or two people saved, or three people saved, and maybe you go out the next week, and you say, man, nobody got saved, but I talked to some people, and I, I gave them a thorough explanation of the gospel, I definitely planted a seed, but they didn't get saved, they weren't ready, or maybe you went out, and you say, man, there's somebody, uh, I talked to somebody, and they they kind of knew already. Somebody had already talked to them, and I just gave them some more verses and, and, and follow up with them, but they weren't ready to get saved. You know what? In every one of those situations, you've all accomplished something for the cause of Christ. You say, but I didn't get anybody saved. Yeah, but it's God who gives the increase. So whether you just plant the seed and you say, well, I didn't get them saved, but they get saved later on, or whether you come alongside and you water that seed and you add to it and you help them understand and they don't get saved, but they get saved later on. Or maybe you get to reap and, and, and pray with them and all. Look, all of that is the same. So don't get so, you know, don't get discouraged when you go out there and you say, well, nobody got saved this week. Hey, he that planted and he that watereth are one. As long as you're out there warning people and giving people the gospel and trying and doing your work, at the end of the day, it is God who giveth the increase. It's God who is the one who does the saving. And this is why it's so important that he's explaining this, because he's about to jump into this idea of the judgment seat of Christ. And, and he's going to really emphasize this idea. In fact, look, look at verse 8 there. Notice what he says. He says, Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. And here's what you need to understand. In the work of God, in the work of God, your position doesn't matter as much as it matters that you are that you have a position, that you 
have a place to work. It's not like the pastor is going to get more rewards because, you know, he was a pastor as opposed to someone who was just serving in the church. Look, God has called me to be the pastor of this church. God may not have called you. You may not be. He didn't put the desire in your heart to be a pastor. You're a faithful church member here. You're a faithful whatever position and role you play. Hey, as long as we are running the race that is set before us, as long as we're doing the will that God has called us to do, then he that watereth and he that planteth, he that reapeth, they're all one. It's God who gives the increase. But here's the important thing that you need to understand. God does not reward us based on results. He rewards us based on our work. He rewards us based on our labor. Notice verse 8. Now he that planted and he that watereth are one. Notice what he says. And every man shall receive his own reward. Notice what he says. According to his own labor. You say, well, it's not like I'm going to get, when I get to heaven, I get the judgment seat of Christ, I'm going to get, you know, rewards based on how many people I got saved. No, you don't get rewards based on the results. Why would God reward you based on something he did? He's the one that did the increase. He's the one that did the saving. He's the one that quickened and gave life. You say, well, what do we get rewarded? We get rewarded based on the work we do. The results we leave up to God. The results are up to him. Notice, notice, notice verse 8 again. He says, every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. Now, he's, he's starting to get into this idea of the judgment seat of Christ. And I want to just give you some uh, verses, cross-references in regards to the judgment seat of Christ before we get into that uh, in the passage. But go, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just one book over. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and look at verse 10. Because in 1 Corinthians 3, he's talking about the judgment seat of Christ, but he's not, he doesn't name it. But that's what he's talking about, and it's very clear. But I want you to notice where the Bible actually names this judgment. Second Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 10. Second Corinthians 5, 10. And it's so important that especially new soul winners get this because sometimes soul winners go out there and they're like, man, I've got to tell you, I didn't get anybody saved in, in weeks. I remember one person quit, you know, soul winning. And, and the reason they gave me for quitting was I tried it for a few weeks and nobody got saved. And it's like, well, I mean, good night, you know. Um, maybe you should just stick with it, you know, or maybe you're not, you, maybe you just started, you're not doing it right or whatever. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter if nobody gets saved. It matters that we do what God has called us to do. Amen. You know, so don't, don't think, well, if nobody gets saved, then I'm not going to go out there. No, you know, sometimes we plant, sometimes we water, but God is the one who always gives the increase. 2 Corinthians 5, look at verse 10. Notice what he says. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And I want you to understand a couple of things just as we get into this idea of the judgment seat of Christ. Number one, this is a judgment for believers. He is talking to the church at Corinth, which is a, uh, a group of believers. There is a judgment for believers called the judgment seat of Christ. There is a judgment for unbelievers. You can read about it in the book of Revelation called the Great White Throne Judgment. At the great white throne, people will be judged uh, for their sins in regards to salvation, and they will be cast into hell. The judgment seat of Christ is a judgment for believers. Now, I want you to understand, it is a judgment that happens in the future. It is a judgment that happens in heaven or in the spiritual world for the things that we do in this world. Notice verse 10 again. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive, notice, the things done in his body. So your judgment seat day, your, the, the day of the judgment seat of Christ in your life will be dependent 
on the things you do in this earth, in this body. That's the purpose of the judgment seat of Christ. And I want you to notice it says there, according to as they have done, whether it be good or bad. Sometimes people read that and they think, oh, we're going to be judged for our sins. As believers, we'll never be judged for our sins. And I've talked about that extensively, and I don't want to get too bogged down into that. But look, once you're saved, your sins are gone. You'll never be judged for those. You say, well, what does it say there, uh, if, whether it be good or bad? And I don't want to get too much into it because we actually just dealt with it not long ago when we were studying through the book of Leviticus. But if you remember, in the book of Leviticus, we learned that the words good and bad don't have to do with uh, you know, moral or, or, or immoral or, or you know, what we would consider sinful. Good or bad basically has to do with value, you know, whether it has value or not. The milk went bad. It's not that the milk got backslidden. It's just you can't drink it anymore. There's no value to it. And that's what he's saying. He said, we're going to be judged whether the things done in our body are good or bad. And we're going to talk about that here in a second. Go to Romans chapter number 14. If you go backwards, you're there in 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Romans. Romans 14, look at verse 10. Let me show you another verse where this is brought up. Romans 14 and verse 10. Romans chapter 14 and verse 10, notice what the Bible says, Romans 14, 10. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And you know, we should be very careful about judging other people and what they're doing. And, and I'm not talking about false prophets or some things that, things that are lined out clearly in Scripture. But you know, we can become very judgmental as fundamental Baptists. And we start judging, you know, what people are doing in their walk with God and what they're doing with their children and in their marriage and in their ministries or whatever it might be. You know, God himself has determined not to judge a man until the end of his life. And we would do well uh, to be careful about judging people. Because he says, why does, uh, he says, but why does thou judge thy brother? Or why does thou set at not thy brother? He says, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He says, look, we're all going to get judged one day for the way that we lived our life. So I'd like to tonight just give you three statements, three elements in regards to the judgment seat of Christ. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you don't have a baby sitting on your lap, I'd like you to write these statements down. If you've got a place to take notes on the back of your course of the week is uh, always a place where you can take notes there. 1 Corinthians chapter number 3, I'd like you to write down these statements. Statement number one tonight, I want to give you three thoughts, three elements about the judgment seat of Christ. And you say, well, why? Why does it matter? Why does it matter uh, that we understand the judgment seat of Christ. And here's what you need to understand. You're going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ whether you like it or not. If you're saved, it comes with a deal. We, that's what he says. He says, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So it's not a voluntary thing where you say, well, I, I think I did pretty well. I'd like to be judged and see how it goes. No, no, no. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You will stand. If you're saved, you will stand at the judgment seat of Christ one day. And if God is going to judge you, the things which are done in your body, look, I don't know about you, but if, if there's rules to the game, I want to know what the rules are. You know, I, I want to know, if I'm going to get judged for something, if I'm going to be expected to produce something, then I want to know what it is that I'm going to get judged for and how to play the game. So I want to give you three elements in regards to this idea of the judgment seat of Christ. And you say, well, why? Here's why. To help you prepare for the judgment seat of Christ. Because the Bible says, and as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. You will be judged one day. So you must be preparing. You must spend your life preparing for the judgment seat of Christ. So how do we do that? Number one, I'd like you to write the statement, not, the statement down. The judgment seat of Christ is a personal judgment. The judgment seat of Christ is a personal judgment. Look, look at verse 8 there. Notice what he says. He says, Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. Notice what he says. 
and every man shall receive his, notice this word, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, underlining your Bible, I'd underline this word, maybe even circle this word, notice what he says, he says, every man shall receive his own reward according to his, notice, own labor. The judgment seat of Christ is a judgment for all believers, but I need you to understand that it's an individual judgment. It is a personal judgment. You will not be able to stand at the judgment seat of God and say, as a wife say, yeah, well, my husband went soul winning. No, no, no. You will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And every man shall receive the things done in his own body. And the word man, there's not talking to just males. It's it's talking about mankind. We will all stand and we will all be judged and we will all receive our own rewards according to his own labor. You teenagers are not going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ one day, you know, and and, and you leave this church and you get backslidden and, and you mess up your life and ruin your life someday and then stand at the judgment seat of Christ and say, yeah, but my mom and dad were faithful. Look, you don't get to come to Verity Baptist Church and say, well, I don't go soul winning, I don't serve, I don't do anything, but other people in the church, we're not going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ as a church or as a family or as a marriage. You will stand there on your own and give an account and be judged for the things that you did in your body. So you see, your, your wife's Bible reading doesn't count. And your husband's prayer time doesn't count. And your pastor's soul winning doesn't count. And, and your friend, do you understand what I'm saying? It's a personal judgment. You will be judged for the things. You will receive your own rewards according to the things done in your own body and according to your own, look at the word, labor. Every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. Now, I do want you to understand something because it's beautiful how the Bible is written. He tells us it's a personal judgment. It's an individual judgment. It's an isolated judgment. You will be judged alone for the things that you did and your own labor. But here's what he says. He says, you're not alone. Notice what he says. I love this passage. I I love verse 9. He says, for we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's labor. Ye are God's building. So notice, he says, look, you can't get, you won't, you're not going to sit there as husband and wife. You're not going to sit there as father and child or mother and child. You're not going to sit there as pastor and church member. You're not going to get judged as a group. He says, you'll get judged on your own for your own labor, for your own rewards in your own body. But he says, but you won't stand there alone because we are laborers together with God. And I want you to understand this. Go, go to John chapter 15. And I want you to understand this. And look, maybe this doesn't matter. Maybe it's Wednesday night and you're tired and whatever. I get that. But, but I want you to understand this, and maybe you should write this down. We are not laboring for God. We are not laboring for God. We are laboring with God. Do you understand that? We're not laboring for God. It's not that we're these uh, slaves and these servants, and we are servants to God, but it's not that we're just these slaves and God owns us and we have to do what he tells us to do because of that. No, no, no. We will stand at the judgment seat of Christ and you will stand there alone with no other human, with no other person, with no other person that you can say, well, well, what about them and what about that person? No, it'll be you, but it won't just be you. It'll be you and God. We are not laboring for God. People say, well, I did this for God. Well, you shouldn't be doing anything for God. Because everything that's done in the Christian life ought to be done with God. Amen. We're laborers together with God. John 15, look at verse 14. Notice what he says. John chapter 15 and verse 14. 
John 15, verse 14 says this, You are my friends. You are my friends. If you do whatsoever I command you. Notice what he says. He, and, and I want you to notice, Jesus said, you're my friends. He looks at you and he looks at me. He says, we're friends. Verse 15, he says, henceforth, I call you not servants. He said, you're not an employee of mine. You're my friend. He said, I call you not servant. Here's what he says. You say, How, well, what's the difference between a, a, a friend and a servant? What's the, what's the difference between a, a, a friend and a peer? Uh, I'm sorry, a servant and employee. Let's use these words. What's the difference between an employee and a peer? What's the difference between an employee-boss relationship, someone you work for, versus someone you work with? You know, I have uh, people I work with. You have people you work with. What's the difference between someone you work for and someone you work with? Well, notice what he says. He says, henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. See, here's the difference between the working for versus working with relationship is when you work for someone, they tell you what to do, but you don't know what they do, right? I mean, the boss is in the office somewhere. You don't know what he's doing. But people you work with, you know what they're doing. You know, here, here at Verity Baptist Church, I'm the pastor of the church. We have two full-time employees, Brother Stucky and Brother Oliver. They work together a lot, often. You know, we actually do, we have a weekly meeting where I meet with them and I give them tasks for the week and we talk about the projects and things they're working on. And of course, I, I talk to them on the phone and through text message on a daily basis. But you know, there's many days that I don't see them and they don't see me. But they see each other probably every day that they're working. You say, why? Because there's a difference between someone you work for and someone you work with. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, in the employee relationship at work, you've got a boss and you probably don't see him and, and, and you don't see him a lot and he's off doing something else, but then you've got people you're working with. But here's what I want you to say. Jesus says, we are friends. He says, you're not my servant. He says, you're not my employee. He says, you're not laboring for me. He says, you're laboring with me. And the Christian life is a beautiful life because of the fact that Jesus said, and God says that I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So, you know, as you're homeschooling those children and raising those children at home, ladies, and having those tough days and having those struggles and saying, man, I'm just so overwhelmed all alone. Remember that you're not alone because you're not laboring for God. You're laboring with God. And God's with you. And, and, and you men go off to work and you say, man, it's hard out in this field and in this culture and with these people. They're all a bunch of unsaved heathens and some of them are reprobates. You know? But remember, you're not alone because you're not working for God. You're working with God. And we will not be judged at the judgment seat of Christ for the work we did with others. It'll be a personal judgment, but it'll always be with what we did with God. And isn't that a wonderful thought to think that we labor together with God, that the creator of the universe has partnered with us in the ministry and in the work that he has given us? Go back to 1 Corinthians 3, notice verse 10. Not only do we labor with God, but we labor on the foundation of God. And of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 10. He says, According to the grace of God which is given unto me, as a wise master buildeth, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. You say, Well, what foundation is it that I have to take heed that I build thereupon? Verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. See, here's what you need to understand. Any good judgment seat of Christ day is going to come from a life that was built upon the foundation of Christ. And we don't have to turn there, but you know the story. The wise man built his house upon the rock. Who's that rock? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the foolish man 
built his house upon the sand. What does the sand represent? It represents the world and, and, and the fact that there's no foundation there. Everything's changing. Nothing stays put. So in our lives, we need to understand, we're going to get judged. You say, what, what, how can I prepare for the judgment seat of Christ? Well, here's the first thing you need to understand, that the things you do in your life right now, the things you do in your life right now are the things that you will be judged for one day, and it will be you, not your husband, not your wife, not your fellow church member, not your, your children, not your parents, not your whoever. It's a personal judgment. But you're not alone in it because we are laborers together with God. Notice verse 12. Let me give you the second point tonight. Number one, the judgment seat of Christ is a personal judgment. Number two, I'd like you to understand the judgment seat of Christ is a discerning judgment. The judgment seat of Christ is a discerning judgment. Notice verse 12. He says, now if any man build upon this foundation... Notice what he says. Because remember, the foundation is Christ, right? When you got saved, that was the foundation. He lifted you up from the miry clay and set you upon a rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, now you get to build a life upon that foundation of Christ and salvation. And he says, if any man build upon this foundation, here are your choices, gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, stubble. Notice verse 13. Every man's work Notice the word work there? That's what we're getting judged for, our work. Every man's work shall be made manifest. The word manifest means that we will see it. We will see it. It'll be clearly seen. It'll be made manifest. For the day shall declare. What day? The day of the judgment seat of Christ. The day of judgment will declare your work. It'll be manifest because it shall be revealed by fire. Now, I, look. I tend to think this is literal, just because I like to take the Bible literally. Maybe it's figurative. I don't know. But here's what he says. He says, that day your works are going to be revealed by fire, and fire shall try or test every man's work of what sort it is. Now you say, well, fire, here's, and again, I don't know. Maybe this is figurative. Maybe it's not literal. But here's what he's saying. Here's the analogy he's giving. He's saying, you're going to get to the judgment seat of Christ. And God is going to bring out your works, and they're going to be represented by these things. Gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, and stubble. And he's going to take all of the works, all of the things that you did in your life that are represented by those, and he's going to throw them into a fire. And the fire shall reveal what the, the work of what sort it is. Now, let me ask you a question. If you throw wood, hay, and stubble into fire, what's going to happen? It's going to burn up. It's going to disintegrate. If you throw gold, silver, precious stones into a fire, is it going to burn up? The answer is no. See, and here's what I understand. You will not find that you are simply rewarded for the work you do, but you are rewarded for the type of sort of work you do. See, it's a discerning judgment. So it's not that you'll be able to say, well, I did all this work. Look at all this work that I did. No, the works themselves, the judgment itself, the fire itself will discern the sort of work that you have. So you say, well, what, what kind of sorts of work are the ones that are going to sustain, you know, are going to be the gold and the silver and the precious stone versus the wood, hay, and stubble? Well, there's really two types of work or two uh, characteristics in regards to the type of work that you want to have on that day. And maybe you can write these down. The worth of your work will be determined by two things. Number one, the eternal value. The eternal value of the work. Go, go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4. See, there's an eternal... The, 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 the gold and the silver and the precious stone represent when we do work which has eternal value. 
and the wood, hay, and stubble represent the work that we do that has no eternal value, that is temporal, that has a temporary value. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verse 17. Notice what he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17. Notice what he says. He says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we look, notice, while we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You say, well, how do I know if I'm working in in regards to something that has eternal value versus temporal value? Well, here's a good rule of thumb. If you can see it, if you can see it and destroy it, then it probably doesn't have eternal value. So you say, well, uh, what if I invest myself into my children? Don't I see them? Yeah, but you can't destroy them. Their souls will live forever somewhere. Heaven and hell, they'll they'll exist for eternity. Do you understand that? When we labor for the things that are not just a nicer car and a bigger house and a better neighborhood and a bigger bank account and, and, you know, uh, clothing that has the right name brand that's going to impress people, when you labor for things that are seen, that people look at and are impressed by, God says, that's wood, hay, and stubble. God says, that's temporal. But when you invest in that which is unseen, then you are investing in that which is eternal. Go, go to Matthew chapter number 6. Let me give you an illustration of this. Matthew chapter 6, the first book in the New Testament. It should be fairly easy to find. Matthew 6. Do me a favor because we're going to leave Matthew 6 and we're going to come right back to it. So just leave your finger there or put a ribbon or bookmark or something there. But let me explain something about this temporal versus eternal. There is a way. There is a way to turn the temporal into the eternal. There is a way to turn the temporal into the internal. You say, well, how does that work? Well, look at Matthew 6 and chapter, chapter 6 and verse 19. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. Notice what he says. He says, lay not up. Lay not up. He says, this is not a good idea. You don't want to do this. He's giving you investment advice here. He's saying, lay not up for yourselves treasure upon the earth. You say, well, what's wrong with treasure upon the earth? Well, the problem with treasure upon the earth is that it's temporal. It gets destroyed. Notice what he says. Where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. So, well, what's the good thing about laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven? Well, the good thing about heaven is that there's no Bernie Madoffs. The good thing about heaven is that there's nobody to steal from you, no one to take it from you. Where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You say, well, what what is he saying? He's saying, don't lay up for yourselves treasure upon the earth. That's the temporal. You say, how do I turn that into the eternal? And it's a really just an easy understanding. Here's what he's saying. You can take money that's temporal, money that has no eternal value. But when you invest that money into the work of God, when you invest that money to start churches, when you invest that money to support missionaries, when you invest that money to get the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ out in the community, and people get saved as a result, you now took something that's temporal and turned it into something that's eternal. So he says, he says there is a way to convert the two. Here's another example. On Monday of this week, we had several men here volunteering their own time after work, and they were just fixing things around the building. They were installing lights, they were running wires, they were fixing issues in the bathrooms. And here's the thing, there's nothing inherently spiritual about running wires and installing lights and fixing toilets. But when you're doing it, 
so that people can come to a place, hear the Word of God preached, and have their lives changed and transformed when you're doing it so that people can come to a place and get saved and get baptized and learn the Word of God. And people literally that come to this church, some of you sitting in this room right now, could say, man, I would not be married if it wasn't for the teaching of, uh, uh, that I've learned in this church. Or my children uh, would, 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 be, would be so worldly if it wasn't for the instruction that I've learned in this church. Or my life would be a mess if it wasn't for the, the investment that has been made to me here spiritually. You say, well, is there anything uh, grandiose of, of cleaning a building, of taking the trash out? There's nothing spiritual about that. But when you're doing it for a spiritual reason, you now turn something that's temporal into something that's eternal. So you think those guys are going to get rewarded in, in heaven for those things? Absolutely. Because they're doing it for the eternal, for that which is unseen. So see, the worth of your work will be determined by its eternal value, but there's another characteristic. Go, go, go back to, to 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. Keep your place there in Matthew 6. We're going to come right back to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and keep your place there in Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. I want to remind you the context, the context. Because remember, we, we, sometimes when we preach these sermons, you know, we deal with something in the same chapter a week ago, so you kind of forget that. Remember, last week we talked about the first four verses of the chapter dealing with the idea of carnal Christianity. And one of the things that he mentioned was in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3, he says, For ye are yet carnal, for whereas, notice what he says, there is among you envying and strife. And divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? Remember Philippians 2, 3, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. And go, go back to Matthew chapter 6. You say, well, what, what, what are you talking about? Here's what you need to understand. The work that you do, the work that you do, the judgment seat of Christ is going to discern, it's going to discern the type of work that you do, whether it's gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. You say, well, what do I want? The worth of your work will be determined by its eternal value, but also the worth of your work will be determined by its underlying motives. Why do you do what you do? If you do it for envying and strife, then the judgment seat of Christ will reveal that. Matthew chapter 6, look at verse 1, notice what he says. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1. He says, take heed that you do not alms before men. Now, what's an alm? And I don't have time to develop this. You can study that on your own. But an alm is when you give to someone who's poor, someone who's less fortunate than you are, someone who is in need. He says, take heed that ye do not your alms before men. Notice what he says. Notice what he says. To be seen of them. To be seen of who? To be seen of men. Otherwise, notice, otherwise ye have no reward. See, the judgment seat of Christ is going to discern not only the eternal value of your work. You say, well, I did things that had eternal value. I gave to the, to the poor. I gave them alms. Yes, but it will also discern the motives of your works, why you do what you do. And if you do it to be seen of them, otherwise you have no reward for your, uh, of your Father which is in heaven. Notice verse 2. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound the trumpet before thee. Now, I really hope Jesus was being you know, a little sarcastic here. I really hope that there was not some Pharisee. I mean, could you imagine some Pharisee walking down the road? There's some guy laying there, lame, born from his mother's womb, lame, blind, or whatever, asking him for money. The Pharisee's like, sure, I, I got a, a nickel, but hold on. Everybody, everybody, watch, watch, watch. I'm giving this guy money. You see it? You see how gracious I am? Everybody got that? Here, take a picture. I mean, I really, I really hope Jesus was kind of just being sarcastic here. I really hope this wasn't something that these people were actually doing. 
But, but notice what he says. Look, look, look at verse 2. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the street, that ye may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. See, when these politicians want to give all this money away, but they got all their photo shoots, there's no reward for that. I mean, I'm sure they're not even saved, but you know what I mean? There, there's nothing. Why? Because there's an underlying motive there to be seen of men. Verse 3. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward, but thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father, which is in secret, and thy Father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. Look at verse 16, he says, Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. See, the judgment seat of Christ will discern the motives, the underlying motives, whether you do what you do, why do you do what you do? If you simply do it to be seen of men. And this is something that's very important to me as a pastor. Because, you know, because of my position, a lot of what I do is in public. Now, look, he's not saying that you won't get rewarded if you serve, you know, while being seen of men. He says you won't get rewarded if you're doing it to be seen of men. So you can serve in a public capacity and do it with the right heart and the right spirit not to be seen of men. And I often pray and ask God to help me. You know, the work that we do here is not for me to try to have some sort of, you know, uh, fame or whatever it might be. We don't post the sermons on YouTube to try to, we, to, try to get, you know, more popularity. You say, why, why do you do what you do? To try to get the gospel out. To try to get the word of God out. To try to get the teaching and the preaching out. And honestly, you know, we get more hate than love from most of it anyway. So it's not like we have that danger. But the idea is this. That when you do what you do to be seen of men, you lose your rewards. And you, there are things. And I remember there was an individual, they don't come to our church, but I was, my wife and I were so concerned. Because it seemed like they were only nice to their children if there was an opportunity to put that on Facebook. You know, they, they were only loving to their spouse if, if someone was going to take a picture or a video so they could post it on some sort of social media. And sometimes, you know, I wanted to ask, do you ever do anything nice for your children just just to do it for your children? Where not everybody, the whole world doesn't have to know about it? You know, be careful about your motives. You say, why? Why does it matter? Because at the judgment seat of Christ, all, those, all of those works will be null and void. Because the day will reveal it. What sort they are. Whether they are eternal or temporal. You say, well, I worked very hard, and I started a business, and I went on a cruise, and I did this, and I traveled the world. That's all great, but if you're not working in something that's going to outlast you, you won't get rewarded for that. That's wood, hay, and stubble. But also, it'll discern the motives. Because when we do things to be seen of men, ye have your reward. Let me give you the third, the third element of the judgment seat of Christ. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, notice verse 14. He says this, if any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Here's point number three. The judgment seat of Christ will be an earned judgment. The judgment seat of Christ 
will be an earned judgment. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, in America today, we, we, we really live under this, you know, participation trophies culture. You know what I'm talking about? You know where you get a trophy just for participating? It doesn't matter if you win or lose. Everybody gets a trophy. I got an article here from the New York Times. It says, participation trophies send a dangerous message. Here's what it says. It says, trophies used to be awarded only to winners, but are now little more than party favors, reminders of an experience, not tokens of true achievement. When awards are handed out like candy to every child who participates, they diminish in value. If every soccer player receives a trophy for merely showing up to practice and playing in games, the truly exceptional players are slighted. The same applies to teams. Regardless of individual effort or superior skill, all who participate receive equal acknowledgement. Trophies for all convey an inaccurate and potentially dangerous life message to children. We are all winners. This message is repeated at the end of each sports season, year after year, and is only reinforced by the collection of trophies that continues to pile up. We begin to expect awards and praise for just showing up to class, practice, after-school jobs, leaving us woefully unprepared for reality. Outside the protected bubble of childhood, not everyone is a winner. Showing up to work, attending class, completing homework, and trying my best as sports practice are expected of me, not worthy of an award. And here's the thing, I'm not, I don't really care about trophies being handed out to little kids just for showing up. But the idea is this, that we have this mentality that, you know, everybody gets a reward, but not so at the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus is not in the trophy participation culture, and he's not a communist either. He's going to reward you based on the actual labor you do. God will reward actual accomplishment, not simply participation. Notice again, verse 14. If any man's work abide, which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If we put your work in there and something's left over, God says, I'll reward you. I will give you something. I will make sure you get paid, that you get what's coming to you. Notice verse 15. If any man's work shall be burned, look, there are some people. There are some people that the angels are going to bring out the carts of all the labors in your life, and we're going to look at the carts, and they're going to be all wood, hay, and stubble. And there's going to be no gold and no silver and no precious stone. And those things are going to get dumped into that fire. They're going to burn up. And verse 15 is for you. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Look, God will reward actual accomplishment. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You're there in chapter 3. Just flip a few pages over. So therefore, so therefore, you don't get a participation trophy. You don't get to just be, you know, I remember when I was a kid. When I was a kid, the participation trophies were already there. When I was a kid, my brother and I played baseball. And my brother was, you know, later as we got older, things changed and we actually played on the same team. But when we were little, they would ask us, you know, do you want to play on the same team? And we were rivals. And he said, no, we don't want to play on the same team. And, and uh, so my brother ended up being on the best team on the league. And I ended up being the best player on the worst team on the league, Right. At least I like to think I was the best player on the worst team in the league. But, uh, you know, and here's the thing. We got a trophy. And we didn't win one game. And, you know, you think that trophy mattered a lot to me? The answer is no. I don't know what that trophy is. But every year we got a trophy. I mean, if you, you would have came to my house, you would have thought, man, you got some, like, dynamic baseball, you know, 
future Hall of Famer. It's like, no, everybody gets those. You know, we all get that, no matter how good you are. But God is not that way. 1 Corinthians 9, look at verse 24. Notice what he says. He says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run. Here's what he's telling you. Because the running is a picture of our lives. We run in the race that is set before us. We run in the life. God says, I've given you a race to run in this life. Remember, Paul said, I've finished my race. He said, he said I, I, I finished what God accomplished me to do. And he says this, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So then run. He says, so then run. He says, so then run. Here's what he's saying. This is how you ought to live your life. Live your life that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is tempered in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Here's what he's saying. Live your life in a way where you can actually win something. Live your life in a way where you can actually get a reward because God will not hand out participation trophies. You're not going to be able to say, well, I went to Verity Baptist Church, and they did a whole lot of soul winning. No, did you do soul winning? They did a whole lot of serving. No, did you do serving? They did a whole lot of Bible reading. Did you do Bible reading? They did a whole lot of prayer. Did you pray? Because you get rewarded for the things that you did. Your own rewards for your own labor for the things done in your own body. Now, here's what's interesting about those verses. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 3, they actually prove something that I think is very interesting. They prove the fact that you can be saved and have no works. Because notice what he says in, in verse 15. He says, if any man's work shall be burned, he's going to be thrown into hell. Right? Is that what it says? Because, you know, if you get saved, there's going to be works to follow. No. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. Meaning there were rewards he could have had. There were things he could have had. He will suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved. Yet so as by fire. You say, why? Because you can be saved and have no works. You don't have to turn there, but Romans 4 or 5 says this, but to him that worketh not. But to him that worketh not. It doesn't say to him that worketh a little bit. It doesn't say to worketh some. He says, but to him that worketh not. To somebody who did no works, did absolutely nothing. They got saved. He says, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justified the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. They did no works, but they believed. Hey, you know what? At the judgment seat of Christ. They don't get to not be in the judgment seat. They don't get to say, you know what, God? I'm going to pass this one. Let everybody else go. No, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But they will suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So some will have no works and no rewards, but still be saved. But listen, you don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be that gal. You don't want to be that person. Because you say, well, why? Because here's what it'll show. It'll show that you lived a life for self. That you did nothing for the eternal. And you did nothing for God. Now, verses 16 and 17 in this chapter, we're actually going to deal with those in another sermon uh, not next week, but in another part of the book uh, later on in our study. But I just want you to think about this idea of preparing for the judgment seat of Christ. Here's, here's some questions for you. Are you personally involved in the work of God? Are you personally involved? I didn't, I didn't ask if your wife was. I didn't ask if your cousin was. I didn't ask if your neighbor was. I said, are you, are you personally involved in the work of God? Is your life focused on the eternal or the temporal? Are your motives right? Are you doing it for the right reason? Will you have anything to show for your life at the judgment seat of Christ? Because look, 
one day we will all stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And what you do today and what you do in this body will determine how that day goes. So let us spend our lives. Let us spend our lives preparing for the judgment seat of Christ. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you, Lord, for the fact that you give us these clear scriptures. You tell us exactly what's coming, what's going to happen, what we're going to be judged for, what the rules are. And Lord, I pray that you would please help us. Lord, I pray that you'd help each and every one of us to make sure that we are living a life in preparation, that we would so run to obtain. Lord, I pray that you would help us to draw close to you. Help us to make sure we are investing in the eternal, not in the temporal. Lord, help us to make sure that our motives are right, that our hearts are right, that we're not doing it out of envy and strife. And Father, I pray that you would help everyone in this room to have a good judgment seat of Christ one day. We'll stand before you and be able to show that we served you and we loved you and we were thankful and we gave our lives in gratitude for our salvation. We love you, Lord. Pray that you'd bless the rest of this week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.